Hi, good afternoon, everyone. This is MG. I'm Elizabeth Pudwell, and this is Sober Sisters. Um, this is our podcast where we bring to you, the listener, um, as we take our principles and sobriety out into everyday life and deal with whatever comes up. <laughs> right, and try to use a framework of sobriety and recovery in, in regards to all the programs that we've worked to help others create strategies to dealing with their own BS. Yeah, we want we want to provide you relatable topics, things that, you know, most people in sobriety will encounter at one time or another and usually multiple, which is this one today. So yes. <laughs> and I'll start and because there's a lot of good stuff and, you know, I was telling um Elizabeth some of the details around it and I don't really have to go into it here, but Basically, I had a family drama around a photograph that I sent to some family members that um, it was sent in good faith and happiness and and joy, but it might have been of a slightly controversial subject that it didn't bother me, but it bothered them. And so I got some feedback from it, and the feedback was quite, I feel, appropriate. And it was, um, you know, there was a request in there that I was willing to um, comply with. And so in terms of like my part in it, like, do I need to make an amends? You know, what did I do wrong? You know, I feel fine about all that. I feel like it was innocent and I, you know, cleaned it up as quickly as I could. But the piece of it that I want to talk about today were all the subsequent emotions that came up for me that were so overwhelming and the physiological response I had to it, which was what I felt when I was going through withdrawal, which wasn't being able to catch my breath, was having like obsessive thoughts and as hard as I could in my recovery to move away from those thoughts, they would come back and I you know, talked to two people in my support group that evening who I can really weep with. You know, there's not a lot of people that I feel that comfortable to like boohoo with and really show my vulnerable side. And so I got support that evening, went to bed late because I was still worried about it. And then the next day at work, I would have to take out moments from my day to have these little mini panic attacks and process what was going on. And so Elizabeth was talking that about a topic that she was gonna bring in is the topic of limiting beliefs. And the beliefs that I had around all of this were really like my core sloth stuff around fear of abandonment, that my family's not gonna love me, that I'm not gonna be loved, that these people are not gonna be in my life, and so before you go on like you talked about like having that inability to draw your breath and um there there you went like this um you put your hand on your chest to indicate pain and distress even your face shows distress so if you go back to one of those times or even like you know she also talked about when we were 
first discussing this before we started to record um, that feeling that like as soon as you sent it <laughs> you knew you messed up and you went like oh no can I pull it back or how can I undo it and um, you know we've all done that before so I want to discuss that feeling but before that I want to talk about you know how you can you can you go back and mm -hmm. hear the exact thought that you had before you couldn't catch your breath I was just reliving in my mind the vision of my family members receiving review, it. seeing the picture and their response to it being negative like what like they're gonna think they're gonna I feel like I've done damage to relationships within my family and so that feeling of deep grief regret sorrow just my whole family wounding around all of this and my whole intent was to come closer together by sharing something right. that I thought was funny and sweet and it was an intention to come together and like I like you said like after I sent it I was like oh no maybe Did you feel not. like you were in trouble I felt like I was in trouble I did and that I'm going to so be cast old? out. Yeah. Okay. So how old did you feel? Baby. Like, you know, Little. like three or four. Yeah. So this is a really old wound and something that probably, and we can work off recording with that and I can give you some stuff that will help you heal it. Mm -hmm. But I have my own stuff and see, this is where the limiting beliefs come from. Yes. Right there. Right. It's like, I'm going to be cast off or I'm going to be thrown out of the family. I'm not going to feel a part of and feeling a part of anything is so vital to our actualization. You know, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and recovery work is up there, you know, especially SLAA work, it's the top one. It's the self-actualization. You know, you have to have all those other areas of your life taken care of before you can work on that. You know, not so much with AA work, that one comes right below, which I can't remember what it is. But with this one, it's the top one because you can function everything else without it. But it's that self-actualization. It's the highest level of evolvement. Well, and I feel in my family of origin that because I was so neglected, that was my abuse, that I was in fear of, am I going to be fed today? What's going on? There was always a sense of anxiety for me. I mean, if you see pictures of me as a child, I'm always in my pajamas. I mean, I'm kind of dirty. Nobody dressed me. It was sort of like I was kind of a, a wild child. So this comes up for me that I'm not going to be taken care of. And so the... the this the, came up before, too, with the dishes. Yes. It was the same feeling. Yes. Where you're not going to be taken care of. Right. And so the, the statements that I've been, I was saying to myself was, you're fine, Melody. Everything is fine. You're at work. Your day is fine. You've gotten your food. You're okay. Everything is okay. And I just kept saying that over and over to myself. But I rarely get hijacked by situations to this degree mm -hmm. and what I felt was stupid number one that I was still feeling this with as much recovery that I have and so those of you out there who have double digit sobriety I want to um, you know I want to um, say to you that you probably feel this way too I know I hear people in meetings with double digit sobriety and so I want to say that this is normal for those of us who have long-term sobriety 
but for me what happens is I can process it quicker and the time between episodes is grows. farther yes and two the other thing is is that you know it just feels like you're so exposed and vulnerable you're not really you know I mean it does I know that it feels that way I've been there myself but you're the only one that knows besides you and in your family member that you sent that message and so the whole world doesn't know and even if they did it's you know we have all done that anybody who has sent emails and text messages has sent a message that they regretted sending you know everybody has done that right so that right. is a very relatable thing and I love what you said about like um, reminding yourself and the other thing that I would add in there reminding yourself that you're at work and that you're okay is you know to talk to yourself out, out loud and to remind that little girl and you like hey I'm the adult I've got this I'm gonna take care of you I'm not gonna abandon you like your mom did or your family I'm not going to I'm here and I've got you and I'm gonna all the things that she needed to hear and dress her up in good clothes <laughs> and put good shoes on her and make her a nourishing meal and take care of her right thank you for that elizabeth the the thing that i want to have never happen again is to have this stuff happen i want to be neutral and i want to be healed around it and so i talked to one of my friends and i threw out the notion that that maybe i want to go back to therapy because i want to really like get this stuff taken care of and is that naive to think that it's ever going to go away I don't think it does I have had twinges of it I you know you said something when we first started talking um so I'll share my my story that shows up it's my deepest limiting belief and um I think I've shared this with you before I went to the dentist with my mom and I needed extensive work done and on the way back um so I come from a big family. There were six kids, and I'm sitting in the backseat of my mom's big old Cadillac, and she's crying the whole way home about how much it's going to cost to have my teeth fixed. And she, Is I, this real life? This really happened. Yes, and I'm five. Oh, my god! And um, so she's crying, wailing. Oh, my God. How am I ever going to pay for this? What am I going to do? What if we don't have enough? What if I don't have enough to pay for this over and over and over again? So I'm sitting in the back seat thinking, I got to fix this. I got to take care of this. I got to find the money. <laughs> you got to figure out, like, where are we going to get the money? And so I did Because, two. because she, she's talking to me. She, she's in her child. Right. She's in the little girl. And then I'm in, I'm like, and so from that time, I have adopted that, that, um, philosophy around my money that has been my mantra oh my god what if I don't have enough wow and it shows up on the time that I remember it the most clearly I I it was um a few years ago when we had that freeze for a long time not this year but a few years ago it must have been right after um Ike you know because we had that hurricane and that froze for like five days and I didn't have any water so the 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 water froze inside the pipes. And then the day that it melted, it was gushing out of the pipes under the washing machine. 
So I so it burst the pipes. It burst the pipes. Oh shoot! So the next day, I'm waiting for the plumber to come, and I'm like, "What is wrong with me? My I could not catch my breath. I felt utterly like what I wanted to jump out of my skin. I couldn't sit down. I was panicking. I was this close to a panic attack. I was just like, and finally, I sat down. And I was like, "What is going on?" And I closed my eyes and I did what Iris taught me to go inside and look. And I saw myself at five years old in the back seat going, oh my God, what if we don't have enough? Wow. And so I picked up that little girl in my head and I wrapped her legs around me like this and her arms around me like this because she's five. I can still hold her. And I stood up and I started walking around with her and I said, hey, 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 it's okay. I'm the adult. I've got this. You don't have to figure out how to pay for things. I do. I'm the adult, and you know what? I know how to do that. I have some money, but if I don't have enough, I know where to get more. You don't have to do that. And I just walked around the house with her and kept talking to her until I calmed down. Now, did it heal it a bit? It still comes up. I still notice that I have it, and I still have to be like, hey, 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 it's okay. I'm the mom. I got this. I know how to do this, and I have to do it out loud because I have to remind that little girl and me. So you need to hear it. You need to speak it, and then you also need to hear it. I need to speak it because I'm the adult, and I need to hear it because my little girl needs to hear it. Right. And as you do it and you practice that, that's why I said, you know, to tell her, to talk to her and tell her, look, you know, I'm not going to send you out there to deal with this. It's basically what you're doing is you're, I call it leading with your little girl. Mm -hmm. It's like you're sending her out there to deal with your mean old sister who's mad at you, you know, and it's like, that's not appropriate. She's scared. She doesn't have the tools. She's not equipped. So you got to pull her back in and you got to be like, hey, I got this. I'm the mom. I'm the adult. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to send you out there to deal with this. And as far as abandoning, it's okay. Because I got you. I can provide for you. I can make sure that you're fed. I can make sure that you're clothed. I can even make sure that you have a sense of family all the time. And that's what you need to do to, to remind yourself. And you can dissipate it. Right. Does it go away? I don't know. Well, I mean, it's are we going to be 80 having this conversation again? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, I remember I went to an AA meeting over at the Bel Air Club, and there was a woman who was in her probably mid-80s, and she was always funny. It was always great to hear her share. And she goes, I swear I'm going to be working on this self-esteem issue when they're pitching dirt on my coffin. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, that was her stuff. It was like we get to continue to work on our stuff. And my therapist, Patrick, used to say be grateful you have this stuff because that means that I'm continuing to grow and understand things about myself and ultimately help another woman, help another alcoholic, help another person in slaw. And one of the things that I remembered that I did and that I want to share with our readers, and I'm going to have to put my coffee down, is I did EMDR with Patrick when I was recovering from my sex and love addiction. He's the one that ultimately introduced me to SLAW and encouraged me to go to SLAW. And we did EMDR. And have you ever done EMDR? Mm -hmm, yeah. So doing this, and I think it's important that 
there is an auditory component as well as a visual component. So what I did when I was at my desk at work, and I'm kind of in a really private area, sometimes it's by the kitchen. So if there's no one in the kitchen, then, and I'm in You're my alone, hall, yeah. I'm alone. So I was able to do it on my desk and it was just, you know, left, right, pat my desk and I kept my focus between my hands. And so I could see it left and right. And the EMDR work talks about like activating the left and the right side of the brain. So I just did like, I just tapped my desk with my hands left, right, and I kept my gaze in the middle. And I just did some deep breaths and I would do that for about 10 breaths until I felt a little bit of relief. And then I would get back to my uh, work and then the thoughts would come up and they would be overwhelming again about my distress around my family. And I would just stop and do it again. And so I did that probably six or seven times during the day. And I feel like it did help me get more grounded and get into my body. And what I did do is I stayed on my food plan. I did not Oh, good for I you. I did not run to my sugar. I did not run to wanting to overeat or do anything like that. It was like this is when we talk about strategies out in the real world. This is like when the rubber meets the road. And I wanted to stay with it as much as I could and still function because I wanted to get through it. Mm -hmm. And I've often heard... Not push it down, put correct. it away, or act like it's not there, eat at it. Go you know. around it, go under it, Because it'll still be it. there. It'll still be there. And that's part of like what I want as my goal is to have ultimate resolution and healing around this so that I'm not hijacked by it if and when it comes <laughs> I up. I call it the meadow. It's the little kid running in the meadow and hits the clothes on and you're like... <laughs> I love that metaphor. I'm having so much fun. Clock. And then you hit it. Right. And you're on your back. Knocked the wind out of you. Right. So I right. wanted to, to mention, um, you know, this sometimes childhood wounds get a bad rap. Um, you know, it, and that's all, you know, if you don't believe in it, then it's not going to work for you anyway. But if you do... I just want to encourage you. I just want to say this about childhood wounds. They are real. And that the way that you felt, it's you were having PTSD. And you yes. were having a response as if you were three years old. And you were, it feels, even though in a scale of one to ten, the, this actual episode was probably a one or a two, it felt like a ten to you. Because it was because a to my little girl. Yes, because what the feeling of not being a part of it, of being cast away from the family as a three-year-old is devastating. That is, you know, that would make you desperate and very afraid, frightened. So that is, and that's where you were. And when that those things come up, it is as if that, whatever it was that caused that PTSD is happening right now. And that's why I encourage people to deal with the little girl to, you know, to use that theoretical framework yep. for a modality. Because to family. her, it's happening right now. And to you as the adult, you're going like, okay, I have some sense that this is a little out of whack. <laughs> Correct. I'm having this huge response to this benign activity. 
and I can deal with it. And that's, I think that's the part that gives me the most peace as I work through my stuff. Like I know, like if I'm having a very strong reaction that I'm like, okay, this is PTSD. This is not real. Someone once said, if it's, if you're hysterical, it's historical. I just love that saying so much. So tell me about this, your limiting belief um, things that you were talking about. Like, well, so the, what they do is they get in the way of you growing. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they get in the way. You like they, They'll make you fearful of encountering that stuff. So for me, like the, the concept of, oh, my God, what if I don't have enough? Um, it comes up over and over again. And I wasn't aware of it, like clearly aware of it, how deep it was until one day... I was, and this was a few years ago, it was probably like six, seven years ago, and the AC went out in my um, my old car, and the guy called me and said it's going to be $721, Yikes. and I was, yee, I, now I had the money to pay for it, and I was like, fix it, because it's Houston, it's summer, it was hot, it's just like it is right now. And so, um, there's no need to suffer. You don't need to ride around in a hot ass car in this city and be miserable. And, but a couple of minutes later I got up and I was walking around and I was like, well, wait a minute. What, what was I just thinking? Because I feel like I'm in trouble. And I, what I noticed was the way my body felt. I had that same thing that you were talking about. The accelerated heartbeat, the shortness of breath. I don't know what it is in my stomach. I can't define it but it's like it's a sinking feeling in my gut and those three things oh and a dry throat constriction and dry mouth like it can't talk and I feel like I'm in trouble and I went oh I was thinking about spending that money on the car and I was thinking what if I don't have enough and I just thought I have enough and I and I was able to like okay I'm I'm good I'm good and not to throw her out there, the little girl who was sitting in the back seat trying to figure out where to get money. Oh my God. I have enough. And I was able to calm down and proceed and get the car fixed. But the limiting beliefs, that's exactly what they are. So you have this. So my limiting belief in this story is my family's gonna throw me out. If somebody doesn't like what I do, mm-hmm. I'm gonna get cast away. Because right. even even your response right now, what do you do? You say, um, why do you want to heal? Because I don't want to be hijacked by it. I don't ever want to feel this way again. I want to be neutral about it. I want to be like I don't want to say because it really doesn't matter, right? Large and in charge, right? I mean, it's not like you're super uber close with these people, and you see them every Christmas or even things like that, right? Right? Right. right. No, hardly talk to them. So, I mean, and and you'll probably maintain the same relationship that they didn't say don't ever contact us again. Correct. So, you know, you'll probably maintain the same relationship that you have. You're probably not going to get it. This Closer. is what this is what caused the reaction is the, that you're not going to get what you wanted from it. You sent that text thinking, oh, they're going to love me for doing this. And they didn't. Which is what caused the reaction. Right. So if I do something out of love and the other person doesn't love it, I'm going to get cast out. Because that's what happened when you were three or whatever age the first time it happened. Well, and that fits with this whole 
piece of me that wants to be the people pleaser, which is what I learned as a young girl in order to accommodate. And because I was the baby in this big system, I was also from a large family. I was number five, baby number five, mother and father. So there were seven of us. You had eight people. Where were you in the birth order? Four. Four. So right in the smack right dab in, in the, the middle. middle. So, but for me, it was like, I felt like really, and, and, you know, the psychological gesture that I want to say is just like, um, you know, in a tempest, just being tossed around that I had no, you're like at the end of the crack the whip. Yes. Yeah. And so I really, in terms of that system and dynamic, I learned how to be accommodating. I learned how to be funny. I learned how to be quiet, but that's not really my nature. My nature, and so my personality, who I am, is kind of an extrovert. You're more exuberant. I'm more exuberant, and whenever that would come out, it would be punished. And you're going to get cast out of the And I'm going to get cast out. And so that's been one of the biggest schisms in my life, is how do I balance this exuberance and creative nature and this wanting to be loud with the voice in my head that says be quiet be small shut up and so that's my life work i suppose and my life is to work through that i would really encourage you to find ways where and you have you know you do other activities which do allow you to do that and it's interesting that i know this about you now especially because that activity is always under the guise of it's not really you. Instead, it's like, you know, you're like a stand-up comedian. I'm gonna go get my shit out on the stage and be the stand-up comedian when this is really who I am. And it's like you're saving it all up and then you're gonna go do it like that rather than live your life that way. And, you know, you're not always that way. I mean, I've had both from you. I've had very good, fun, exuberant laughs and conversations. And I've had very quiet, soft, soothing conversations with you. You are both. And I think, you know, and we can do this off of the recording is, you know, figure out some ways where you can get okay with that part of you and be really, really comfortable with all parts of you. I feel that I am more myself at this point in my uh, life. I do too, yes. Than at any other time in my life. And I think that I have selected close and dear enough friends that I can express all those aspects of myself. And you're a safe person that I can do that with as well. And um, however, but when something comes up like this, I call it a family of origin episode, I do go back to those dysfunctional defaults that don't serve me. It's real. It's real and it hurts. Well, and I mean, and here's the thing, and I'll just be, since suicide is up in the world right Mm -hmm. now, I would never commit suicide. Let me just say that right off the bat. And I have been suicidal and I have attempted suicide in the past, but I would never do it today because of all the harm that it it would do to all the people that I love. And it's just, you know, I feel like it, someone said it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But what my mind thought during the darkest piece of this little episode that lasted maybe 36 hours was I can't handle this pain and I don't want to go on with this pain and then I then the adult melody said but 
suicide is not an option, honey. So we're going to have to work through it because it's that inner me. And it's more the rebellious teenager that wants to do it than the adult melody. So, and there, and there, and you went to solution as well. You called people. I called and people. And that, you know, that was one of the notes that I took when you were talking because I do find it more and more challenging, especially in the S programs, to find people that are your, that, that you can get support from. Um, and they don't have to have more time than you, but... It is challenging, you know, in S programs because what happens is a lot of people work a program for a couple of years, get get some relief, get a lot of relief, and they stop coming. And they do, you know, one of their other auxiliary programs and they get their needs met from that, which is fine. And, And I'm not criticizing it, but it does make it challenging for people who have long term sobriety to find you know, a sponsor or support group. I mean, I have a small circle of people that I can, you know, rely on. I was doing that when I got here, you know, but it is challenging, but I do think that you did the right thing and you made the calls and you you shared it, which is what that whole message is about those people. Because I'm venturing to guess that they may have felt the same way. I'm I shouldn't feel this way because I'm so smart. Mm. You know, I'm so successful. I shouldn't Mm -hmm. feel this way. Mm -hmm. And we do that to ourselves. You kind of alluded to that Mm -hmm. when we first Mm -hmm. started, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's like, it's not, not true stuff still. I, so I remember real um, recently I ran into my qualifier at a funeral and um, I stayed away from him. He ended up behind me and brushed up against me. And it was, I just was like, really dude and um but I went back to work and I found myself I kept thinking about him I was thinking like maybe I should text him this picture you know somebody did a group picture of all of us at this funeral and I was like no I don't need to do that but it kept coming up maybe I should look at his Facebook maybe I should you know and so I left work and I finally called uh, a friend of ours someone that we both know and talked to her and said, I need to get this out because I can't stop thinking about it. And so, and I know that she had run into hers a few times. And so I just, and we laughed a little and she was, you know, very empathetic and said, oh my God, really? What was he, you know, and um, nurturing and comforting and it left. It left me and I stopped it. Well, that is so key, I think in recovery, of all types that you do have that as support system and I love that the first word and the first step is we 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 there is no I in we you're not supposed to do this alone right you're supposed to you cannot do this alone this program is a we program and the way that it works is the same way we're doing with our listeners we are sharing our spirit strength and hope hopefully on a global scale because we feel so passionate about our recovery. Well, and I know there's at least one person in Seattle that's listened to all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so we so don't have thank one you, listener. <laughs> I mean, and it doesn't matter. It's like if we can help some, one person, then that's, I agree. that's enough for me. I agree. And it, you know what? It doesn't even matter because it doesn't even... if it, I, It helps me. That's the whole point. And I went to... Um, it's a meeting that... Um, TD is mentoring. It's on Tuesday nights, and it's over at this treatment center. Mm-hmm. 
and we went to the meeting and so with the meeting is still kind of new and kind of forming in terms of format and I hope that she makes it more of like a speaker meeting where she brings in speakers and then she allows it to be sort of a panel discussion. Anyway. Oh, I know what you're talking about, the, the home for women. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. And so one of the things that when I was there and speaking, I thought this is a revolutionary program for women, the Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, and certainly for men too, but for women, for me, I found that it has been so empowering and I said, it's revolutionary because now I'm not going, I, I don't, no longer as a weaker sex do I have to depend on another man for anything or if I were lesbian, you know, another woman for anything. I can meet my own needs financially, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. So when we were leaving, she was like, oh my God, this is revolutionary. And we're like starting a movement. She goes, we're starting a movement. And then I left and I'm like, and if it's only she and I that's part of this movement, then way to go. Then go you and her, you know, because it doesn't matter. It's for you. Correct. You know, and it's a what... selfish program. It, you know, everything that I do and it, you know, I tell, tell my sponsees that all the time. It feels like I'm this great benevolent soul and I sponsor all these women and I do care and I do want everybody to have sobriety, but I won't sit here and tell you that I get more out of it than anybody else that right. I work with. Right. Well, and that's Bill W. and Dr. Bob. When they first started trying to help other alcoholics, they would go to the hospitals and they would say, show us your most unfortunate case. And they would talk to these men and they would say, hey, we have a way if you really want to stop drinking. And they were, you know, maybe a little interested and, and maybe they might go to a few meetings, but then they'd go back out drinking and I don't know who said it to the other one. They were saying, we're not helping these men stay sober. And they said, but we're staying sober. Yeah. So I tell my sponsees, I sponsor you from my program. Because whenever I work the steps, I read something new. Right. I get something I share different. something. You know, I hear something always, every single time. Every single meeting with somebody. Yeah. And I get stuff from them like that hysterical historical thing I was like that's brilliant I love it I'm totally stealing it oh hell yeah so yeah so wow Elizabeth this has been so good so Let's we let, let me just recap what we what we did so you know if you do find yourself in a situation and you're having some PTSD and you notice first the first thing you're going to notice is the inability to catch your breath or some type of bodily physiological you're gonna response. have a physiological response you're gonna notice your body like i want to run i want to hide i want to crumble i it was something and then see if you can hear the thought because that is the key thing if you can hear that thought like mine is oh my god what if i don't have enough and yours was um i'm gonna get cast out i'm gonna get i'm gonna get shunned or something along those lines and and um and then to remind yourself from the adult from bring the in the adult. adult get into your functional adult and talk to the little girl sometimes i tell i recommend find a picture or boy if you can find a picture of yourself around the age that you think you were when you first had this feeling and talk to her or him you know tell them i'm the adult i've got this and do it out loud because you've got to hear yourself say it and then get support get some help call someone Absolutely. Don't ever sit in your stuff by yourself. Call no, someone. Get no. to a meeting. Call someone. Do right. something. Right. 
So those are all wonderful things. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you. I'm MG. I'm Elizabeth Pudwell. This is Sober Sisters Talk. That's where we talk and you listen. And if you have anything you want to share with us, please do so. If you um, if you can subscribe, subscribe. If you could share with your friends, please do so. Um, we're here to carry the message. Thank you. And our email is sobersisterstalk at gmail.com. Thank you.